You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning with me today. What is one simple biomarker that we all can track that can tell us about what's happening with our metabolic health, that can tell us how our bodies are responding to the various foods that we're eating? With recent innovations in science and nutritional science, there are so many different biomarkers that we can manage. We've got various lipid panels, we've got hormone panels, we've got isolated thyroid panels, T3, reverse T3. There's so many different things that we could track today. But when it really boils down to it, two things are really telling the tale of what's happening with our health. And also, these numbers can be modulated, can be shifted based on our choices. One of them has to do with inflammation. And we got biomarkers like C-reactive protein, we've got homocysteine and the like. But getting those numbers oftentimes requires getting a full blood panel done and having a practitioner being able to relay that information to you. So outside of that, what is something that we on the ground, what is something that we can easily tap into, that we can manage ourselves, that we can monitor ourselves, that can give us feedback about how our body is doing? And that metric is our blood sugar or blood glucose. Our blood sugar can tell us a lot about what's happening with our bodies, both from our response from various foods, how our body does during times of fasting, and also how our bodies are responding to stress because stress can also dramatically alter our blood sugar. And there is nobody better on the planet to help us to break down and understand the impacts of our blood sugar on various outcomes from our health. And she's going to connect how our blood sugar deeply influences some of the primary causes of death in our society today. People don't think about blood sugar. They think about other things that start with the letter B and S, sorry, other BS. And they don't think about how our blood sugar is impacting our health outcomes. And she's going to share the science on exactly why that is. And so I have something truly special that I put together for you today. And it's a compilation of conversations that I had with the one and only Dr. Casey Means. She's a Stanford University educated physician and researcher. And she was also the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. So a top tier medical journal, peer reviewed journal. And she is the person who is again, associate editor of that and really being a influential piece in research and also education now because she's getting out and sharing these insights that are deeply, deeply science-based, but are deeply lacking in education in medical schools right now. And she's working to change that. And also, of course, most importantly, for people on the ground, everyday folks who can use this information to take control of their health right now. One of the things Dr. Means is gonna be talking about is how utilizing hundreds of thousands of data points from real people is showing us what the very best foods are and the very worst foods are for our blood sugar, for our metabolic health overall. And so again, not just hearsay, not guessing, but using real data points from monitoring people's blood glucose levels. Now, I want you to also keep this in mind. Yes, our nutrition is going to have a powerful influence on our blood sugar, but stress can make your blood sugar go absolutely bonkers. All right, now that's not necessarily a clinical term, but this is what we see in the data. 
And we don't think about this because stress in many ways is invisible. It's based on our perception of things. It's based on our thoughts, our emotions, and really, again, how we're perceiving the world. Now, what is a simple thing that you can add into the mix to help to create a stress buffer for you and for your family? Well, this simple nutrient is incredibly powerful when it comes to helping our bodies to manage and modulate stress. According to data published in the Journal of Nutrition and Food Sciences, both emotional and physical stress can affect a person's vitamin C status. It can increase the requirement for vitamin C to maintain normal blood levels. When stress depletes vitamin C levels in the body, it reduces the body's resistance to infections and diseases and increases the likelihood of further stress. When vitamin C intake is increased and corrected, the negative effects of excessive stress hormones are reduced and the body's ability to cope with stress responses improves. So under stress, our adrenals are just pumping out vitamin C because it's needed to help to basically help the body to defend itself from what it's seen as an incredibly stressful situation where the immune system needs to be front and center. The problem is today, we're very good at going from zero to 100, shout out to Drake, but we're not very good at going from 100 back to zero and revving things back down. Oftentimes we're living in this state of chronic low grade stress where we're depleting our bodies of these key nutrients and we need to have a strategy and intelligence in making sure that we're optimizing this key nutrient. Again, vitamin C is believed to be a powerful stress modulator and reduces our stress by supporting the adrenal glands, allowing a person to bounce back more quickly. In a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial published in the journal Psychopharmacology, looking at the stress of public speaking and other stressors. Now, public speaking is one of the biggest fears of people in our society. But the scientists found that those who received vitamin supplementation experienced less stage fright, maintained more balanced blood pressure, and had a faster recovery of their cortisol levels. All right, this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial without vitamin C being added to the mix under this, again, intense stressor for a lot of people, our bodies are inherently going to struggle to return back to homeostasis, to return to baseline. And so again, that can lead to higher risk of infections, diseases, and also, ironically, more cortisol and higher levels of vitamin C depletion. So again, further stress. So we wanna break that vicious circle, create a virtuous circle by making sure we're optimizing our vitamin C. So of course, eat vitamin C rich foods, it's pretty difficult to not find vitamin C in a variety of fruits and vegetables. Now, the key here is understanding how much we need and how frequently we're getting those foods in and also the depletion that's taking place in our soil. And so if you're going for vitamin C supplementation like I did today, all right, I'm experiencing higher than normal levels of stress, I'm working to optimize some things in my life, shifting some things around, Got kids doing multiple things. Like I got one son getting on a flight. I got another son, got an AAU tournament. It's, it's a lot going on from family to work and mission and everything in between. But there's an important insight that you have to know because people just don't know this. They're trying to do the best that they can, but they don't realize that they're being duped. And this is the fact that most vitamin C supplements on the market are derived from synthetic ascorbic acid made from GMO corn syrup, 
or cornstarch. All right, so we're trying to do better for our health, but then being taken advantage of by marketers who are not delivering the science with integrity because they can be providing something that's far more efficacious and delivering real value by utilizing whole food, superfood concentrates of vitamin C rather than the synthetic version, again, derived from GMO corn syrup. All right, so the emergency packs, those little packets that you see as you're checking out and, and the like, they also oftentimes have added sugar and all this unnecessary crap. That's not what we want. We wanna make sure that we're getting our vitamin C from real superfood concentrates, whole food concentrates, versus, again, matter of fact, listen to this. By being devoid of other essential cofactors, synthetic vitamin C supplements can be outright harmful for your health. For instance, a 2013 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine found that participants taking synthetic vitamin C supplements had twice the risk of developing kidney stones. That's a no good, all right? Trying to do something better for your health by taking a vitamin C supplement, but taking this synthetic stuff, again, derived from GMO corn syrup, it's not what you're looking for. It's not good for your health. Now, going up against synthetic vitamin C versus the vitamin C whole food concentrate that I use coming from Camu Camu Berry, we have a randomized placebo-controlled study published in the Journal of Cardiology that had people who were inflicting on themselves an excessive stressor, right? And this is in the form of smoking. They had them to consume a whole food concentrate of vitamin C in the form of Camu Camu Berry daily over the course of a one-week study and found that it led to significantly lowered oxidative stress and lowered inflammatory biomarkers. And there were no changes in these markers with people taking the synthetic vitamin C. So there's no comparison. Camu Camu Berry is number one. Amla Berry, Acerola Cherry, these are the top three vitamin C rich superfoods that are bioavailable. You can get these organic all together in one source from Paleo Valley. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash model and you're going to get 15% off their incredible essential C complex. Again, I had it today. When I'm dealing with extra amounts of stress, I, I'm always adding this into the mix just as an insurance policy. And again, all organic, no synthetic ingredients, no binders and fillers. Plus it has a 60 day, 100% money back guarantee. So if you aren't absolutely thrilled with it, you'll receive a full refund, no questions asked. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash model right now and you'll get 15% off your order at checkout. Storewide, so not just their essential C-complex, but which is mandatory for me, but storewide. Again, that's paleovalley.com forward slash model. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Fantastic Podcast, Great Host by BP Writer. Recently discovered the Model Health Show and I'm really enjoying it. Absolutely loved episode number 673, The Truth About Medicinal Mushrooms. This research is fascinating and Sean, you explain it so well and love your sense of humor. Got so many unbelievable health takeaways. Can't wait to listen to more episodes. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. And if you have to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And without further ado, we've got this incredible compilation of conversations with Dr. Casey Means, one of the foremost experts in the world on metabolic health. 
And in this first segment, she's going to be sharing with you the truth about blood sugar management and why it's so important. She's also going to share how through hundreds of thousands of blood glucose data points from real people, her and her team were able to find out the very best and very worst foods for blood sugar management, and also some easy strategies you can instantly implement to improve your blood sugar variability and your blood sugar management and so much more. Let's dive into this incredible segment from Dr. Casey Meads. Blood sugar is an incredible biomarker because it's a readout of so many different aspects of our health. Mm. Of course, food impacts blood sugar. When you eat a food with carbohydrates, it gets broken down, goes into the bloodstream, and we're gonna see that as a rise in blood sugar. But what a lot of people might not realize is that other things can cause an increase in blood sugar. Like if we're stressed, stress alone can cause cortisol to be released in the body. And that cortisol goes to the liver and actually tells our blood sugar to raise. And the purpose of that is to provide energy for our body to mount a response to whatever that stress signal is. So stress can raise our blood sugar. Exercise, of course, has a profound impact on our blood sugar because muscles, when we use them, that's a glucose sink. It takes glucose out of the bloodstream. Um, sleep also has a profound impact on blood sugar. When we don't get enough sleep, our glucose can be more erratic and can be more up and down and more spiky. Our microbiome has a profound impact on our blood sugar. And people with different um, patterns of microbial composition in their gut actually respond to different foods differently in terms of how much their blood sugar raises. So it's really this incredible um, readout in our bloodstream of so many different variables in our uh, in our diet and lifestyle. And so, um, you know, big picture, what it does is show us what's kind of going on with our metabolic health. And we're hearing the term metabolic health so, so much more these days, thank goodness, because we're realizing that metabolism and our metabolic health is really one of these links and these connectors between so many of the different symptoms and diseases we're seeing today. Blood sugar is actually related to nine of the 10 leading causes of death in America right now. If you go to the CDC website and you type in leading causes of death, you will see 10 different conditions. And nine of the 10 of them are either directly caused by elevated um, or dysfunctional blood sugar or are worsened or accelerated by dysfunctional blood sugar. So you're gonna see things like, of course, type two diabetes, which clearly is linked to blood sugar, but also things like cancer, and Alzheimer's dementia. Alzheimer's dementia is now being called type three diabetes because it's so linked to blood sugar. You're gonna see heart disease, which is directly linked to blood sugar. Um, but you're also gonna see things like um, respiratory infections. We know that respiratory infections, even things like influenza, these the mortality and morbidity in these conditions are much worse in people with unstable blood sugar. One of the things that we see certainly across the board is that processed foods cause a large a large spike you know these ultra processed foods based in like refined grains and 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 flours and whatnot and sugars um and you know those are kind of we'd expect that um but we actually also see that there's a lot of foods that we typically consider to be healthy which actually cause a really large glucose spike so um, some of the ones in our data set that have been really high spikers are things like grapes, actually, um, sweet potatoes, oatmeal, um, corn, uh, 
funnily enough, acai bowls are one that get logged a lot that have a really big spike. So these are foods that have, you know, lots of nutrients in them. Of course, they're beautiful plant foods, but um, when eaten in isolation tend to cause a really big glucose spike. So that leads us to something else that we've really seen in the data set that when we balance meals and balance foods that um, have, you know, high carbohydrates, um, we actually see a, a much lower glucose response. So often adding fat, fiber, and protein to a carbohydrate actually causes a more gentle rise in glucose. It slows down digestion. Fiber actually may decrease the amount of total glucose you even absorb from the food. Protein also slows digestion. And so balancing foods um, and meals uh, with other macronutrients and not eating naked carbohydrates um, is something that's really helpful for a lot of people. The difference between an apple alone and an apple with a little bit of almond butter and maybe some chia seeds sprinkled on top is actually can be a really uh, big difference. And that's why I see, think we see something like grapes being such a high spiker. Grapes are something you often just sort of eat by the handful on their own. You're not really pairing it with um, a lot of other protein sources usually, or, or, or fat or fiber. And so we just see these really, really big um, rises. But another thing that we see that's really kind of interesting is how you can take kind of like a food category and see that there's quite a big spectrum in responses. So for instance, like sushi, uh, if people who just log sushi in the levels community tend to have quite a large glucose spike, like well over 30 milligram per deciliter rise after sushi. But people who log sashimi, you know, which is, of course, this fish without the rice, another thing you could order at a, at a Japanese restaurant, have a very low glucose response, less than 10 milligrams per deciliter. So maybe that kind of gives us the um, information of like, hmm, I'll order more sashimi and like less of the rolls with the rice. And then there's this whole new category of sushi that some people are doing, which is like cauliflower rice sushi, which actually tastes totally delicious. And I make it at home and I love it, which has virtually no glucose response, even though you're still getting like this, this, you know, these beautiful sushi rolls. And so it helps you kind of think through what am I going to order at a restaurant if my goal is to keep my glucose more stable, more flat. Similar with um, one that's really fascinated me is um, nutrition bars. So like you go into Whole Foods or Erewhon or whatever, and there's like a hundred different bars you can get, like Luna bars, Cliff bars, Bulletproof bars, Quest bars. There are so many. How do you choose? You know, you're just like, look, which box is prettiest, which has the best claims on it, whatever. Well, we can see in our data set just like a total spectrum from bars that have virtually no glucose response to bars that have like really high glucose response. In fact, I won't name names right now, but like some of the healthy, you know, nutrition bars that are in sort of like a nice brown paper wrapper that look like you should take it camping or something like that have a much higher glucose response than a Snickers bar. And then there's other bars like the Bulletproof bar, Quest bar, uh, Perfect Keto bars that have virtually no glucose response. So what I get so excited about is thinking that the future of nutrition is going to be people being able to make these choices in the grocery store based on data not based on food marketing, not being at the whim of these industries who want us to buy this food, but actually making a decision based on data, not only their own data, like the biofeedback loop they've had by testing something and seeing what worked for them, but on population data. What what was the response to this over the, over 
10,000 people, over a million people. We have 51 million glucose data points in our data sets, 1.5 million food logs that have been logged. The power of people being able to tap into what's happening on a population level, these foods, I think that's going to be the future of nutrition. I think in five years, it's going to seem very like quaint and outdated to choose your foods not based on objective biometric data that has been tested both in you and in a large population. You can imagine, you know, right now we go onto a, we Google some recipe we want to cook for dinner and a million recipes pop up. And we usually pick by like, how many stars does the reviews have? And like, does this have any ingredients I don't want to eat? But it we're, we're just a couple years probably away, maybe less from the time when there's actually going to be another section there that says this is how the population responded to it in terms of glucose rise and then you can test it for yourself and find your own data about that and that to me is power that to me puts the hands in the population uh, puts the power in the hands of the population and totally out of the power of the food industry and i think it's going to open up radical transparency that's going to be demanded mm. by people for both the healthcare and the food system saying don't try and just sell this to me like with marketing claims because essentially marketing is going to become obsolete because the marketing is going to come from within, from how we respond to it. And so that really excites me. And I, I think when I look at like I scan the data set of like what's happening with just you know, nutrition bars or or brands of um, non-dairy milk, you see a big spectrum of what is causing a glucose spike and what's not. And that is already driving a lot of the decisions of people in our uh, community, which I think is exciting. And the, the last one I'll mention is that breakfast foods have been a massive thing. I think I've seen interesting data in our data set, which is that if you look at our best scoring foods, so when I say best scoring foods, I mean foods that had the most minor glucose response, very flat and stable response versus the worst scoring foods, which have big spikes and dips. Across breakfast, there are like clear breakfasts that are not working for people's blood sugar and clear ones that are. So when you look at what's in the worst, the big spiking category, it is waffles, pancakes, bagels, donuts, pastries. It's all these white, beige, you know, flour-rich, sugar-rich foods, which if you walk into a coffee shop, like that's what you're going to see behind the counter. We have normalized that these are breakfast foods. Cereal is another big one. Cheerios actually specifically um, is one that has a huge glucose response. Um, so for me, like those are just kind of off, off the table now. Um, when you look at the best scoring foods, it's things like eggs and avocado, eggs and greens. Actually, the Fab Four smoothie, which is a smoothie that was popularized um, by Kelly Levesque, an amazing nutritionist, um, which is basically a smoothie that's a mix of greens, proteins, fat, fiber, minimal sugar, very good score. Um, frittata has a minimal score. I'm thinking about other things in the data set. Uh, chia seed pudding. Um, very minimal glucose response. So it's not like it's just animal-rich foods. It's also some of these plant-based foods, like a like a green smoothie, um, a specific type of green smoothie um, that's well-balanced, and chia pudding. So I look at all this, and I'm like, great. If I'm trying to lose weight, if I'm trying to keep my blood sugar down, if I'm trying to improve my risk of chronic disease, I'm not eating these things, even though they're covering the grocery store even though a lot of the foods in these foods are subsidized by our government, so it's normalized that they're okay, not eating them. But I am going to eat eggs and avocado, eggs and greens, chia pudding, fab four smoothie, frittata, et cetera. And so um, that's kind of some of the stuff we're learning about 
food in the data set. I could I could go on and on, but it's just it's a whole new world of how we're going to judge food um, and nutrition. Yeah, this is so powerful. This is taking it from, you know, again, there's still a level of theory when we see a bagel that, you know, I know that this is really high in refined carbohydrates and, you know, added this and that, you know, same thing with the pancake. Um, but it's still a theory that this food is bad for me. Now you can see yourself what it's doing to your body. And again, this doesn't, we don't want to get to a place where folks are being erotic or that this is the end all be all. And also, of course, this is individual, regardless of any of the foods that you just mentioned, but just being able to get a beat on things, because I think that ultimately what we want folks to be able to do, because we already know that, that, you know, that waffle is probably not the best thing for you. But now we can start to listen to our bodies, you know, get to a place where we can listen to our bodies. And if we have the waffle, no, we want to get to a place really. And this is what I think the greatest gift is with levels is getting your body to a place where there's a healthy metabolic range that your body's staying in with your blood sugar. It's 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 managing things very well. You're in a good state of health. And so that when you do have the waffle, it's not just totally messing you up like your body can kind of clean house, get things back to baseline with with some grace. You know, and so I think that that's one of the great gifts. And also you mentioned, you know, some of these foods that tend to be some of the the biggest influences of derangement, potentially, again, from all your data sets. And I love that you mentioned this. So it's not that the oatmeal is going to be, because I know some folks are like, not my oatmeal, you'll never take it from me. You know, whereas like, what if we have the oatmeal and you add some protein along with it, or you have the oatmeal and you add some almond butter, mix that in there, or you've got, I'm, I love acai bowls. Like I'm super into that just the last couple of months. You know, we went to, I took my family to Huntington Beach for a little staycation mm. uh, over the summer and we got some acai bowls and I was like, I could do this better, you know? And so I was, so now I blend the acai with protein yes. immediately. So I'm blended with protein, some nut butter, you know, bring down that, that glycemic spike. And now also with levels, I can track this and see it firsthand. And, um, you know, it's just such a wonderful thing. And also with grapes, these are foods that we tend to eat in isolation, as you mentioned. So let's take that out of that context, unless it's, unless your body does well with it, which is cool. We well, got to understand even the grapes that we're eating, they're not the same grapes that are in the, you know, the, the historical references, you know, there would be seeds there, you know, and so you would also have to slow down or you're chomping through some seeds. We could just pile on a bunch of grapes really quickly. And what if we take those grapes, if you still want to get dabble in some grapes and cut them up, throw them into, a, you know, a summer salad yes. or something like that, you know, so just getting this data and being able to become more intelligent in our choices and creative and expansive. I don't think this closes a door on things. I really think it opens the door for much more. I think you brought up such an important point, which is this is not about restriction or elimination necessarily. This is about awareness. This is about informed choices. This is not about never eating a waffle again, but it may mean that, oh, I'm going to try, you know, Birchbender's keto almond flour waffles instead and see how that works for me. Or I'm going to eat the same, same waffle, but I am going to do some things around it that make it work better for my body, like add almond butter on top of it, add chia seeds, take a walk after the meal. Just a simple 15-minute walk after eating a high-carb meal can have a significant impact on lowering your blood sugar from that meal. Because again, you're soaking up that glucose out of the bloodstream into the muscles for use. And 
the really cool thing about muscle is that unlike almost every other tissue in the body, muscle can take up glucose without the action of insulin. Just the muscle contraction alone can can allow for glucose to be taken out of the bloodstream. So it's like a freebie, like use it, use that, use those big muscle groups. And even a two minute walk every half an hour throughout the day can statistically significantly decrease your 24 hour glucose levels compared to people who are more sedentary throughout the day. So this is like, just use those muscle groups, do a few squats after your waffle, whatever. And there's so many other things you can do. You could take, for instance, an apple cider vinegar shot before your waffle. We know that vinegar actually um, tends to have an effect of lowering our glucose levels. Um, you could preload your meal with some vegetables, you know, have a little, I don't know, it'd be weird to have a salad before breakfast, but not really in our, I think in our world, I, I'd be happy to do that, but put something in the stomach before eating the carbs. So what I'm trying to say here is that there is this whole context around these foods that you can do mm. to um, enjoy that food um, and have less of a, gl- a glucose um, spike. And so it's uh, it, there's just like a whole toolbox we have to basically minimize that um, that response. So it's not it's not so much about restriction as it is about context, about awareness. And 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 you know I, I would say personally in my own life. Um, I, I really think about sleep and stress as well when I'm choosing what foods to eat. If I have had a poor night's sleep, um, I, I typically wear a Whoop strap. And we actually did a small pilot with Whoop, um, which is one of the wearables that tells you about sleep and activity, um, that showed that the Whoop uh, recovery score, which is a marker of your sleep quality, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, and your respiratory rate, that actually correlated with your glucose variability the next day. Um, and so if my sleep is poor for whatever reason, you know, I've stayed up late working or whatnot, I know that I'm going to try and be a little bit more cognizant of what types of carbohydrates I need in the next day, because I'm probably going to have more of an erratic response to the same food after a poor night of sleep. So, um, same with, with, if I was quite sedentary the day before the next day, I'm probably going to avoid the higher carb, higher spiking foods for me. Cause I know I'm going to basically have a worse impact. So just setting up that whole context around what you're eating, it makes it really fun, you know? And it's, it's again, like you said, it's not about restriction. It's about um, pairing things really thoughtfully to create the best metabolic sort of impact for our, for our body. And um, it's also not about just like trying to game the system with, you know, super low carb foods or low carb bars to keep our glucose flat. You know, you could, you could chug canola oil and your glucose would stay flat. That doesn't mean it's healthy. It's about holistically building a healthy body that processes energy effectively. That is the goal. And that is what our program and our app is really trying to drive people to do by taking in other data streams as well. We take in sleep data, we take in step and heart rate data so that people can build this holistic uh, context. And I think the future is really exciting because right now, the only continuous biomarker that we can track is glucose. That's the only sensor that's available for for use. but in the future, like, what if we can check inflammatory markers? What if we can check um, byproducts of fructose metabolism in the bloodstream? We can see a more holistic picture of what food's doing to our body. And I think that is really the future, is more continuous biomarkers that let us make these decisions in our lives for, for optimal health. Mm, this is great. This is it's such a great segue because I was going to ask you about outside of food, which food is kind of that tangible thing like we can see the food we eat the food we have a relationship with it but we don't think about the 
metabolic implications of stress mm. because it's invisible in a sense you know it's you can't really touch it you can't you know you can't eat it you can kind of stress eat but you you're not eating stress in a sense sleep deprivation same thing and for me in looking at my data you know there was one particular day that i was dealing with a again a random stressful thing and this was the one day that my blood sugar was bonkers like it was stress it wasn't you know a matter of fact i was uh, intermittent fasting mm. and the stress thing happened and my blood sugar went up significantly i'm just like what the but then again if i'm listening to my body i already knew that's why i checked it at that time it's just like these catecholamines that i'm producing you know these stress hormones they might be like letting my body know like hey there's a stressful event coming fight or flight scenario because our biology even though we we believe we're so evolved we're still very we have very prim primitive uh outpicturing and processing and so this fight or flight feeling that i'm getting it's getting my body prepared it's like hey he's got some stuff stored in these muscles here some some glucose let me go and unlock that put that in his bloodstream because he might need to roll out you know and so like to get to see that firsthand i was just like wow that is so nuts and so, but here's the thing, even with that, I'm still empowered. I don't have to be a victim to this stress. And also stress isn't bad, it's gonna happen in our lives, but I have tools to reframe things, even in that moment, or to take some breaths, mm. you know, to, to just tickle the parasympathetic nervous system a little bit in that moment, you know, versus just like this sympathetic dominance taking over, we, are so powerful like we just kind of again outsource our biology to the external world when all of this is within us mm -hmm. you know so let's talk about you you mentioned sleep deprivation being one of those things let's talk about stress in the context of our blood sugar yeah stress is a really profound um variable in what our glucose levels are doing during the day and, and something i really tell patients and that I, I I think is important to know is that you could have like the perfect metabolic diet, you know, everything's totally dialed in. But if you're not managing your stress, you are not going to be optimally metabolically healthy. Food is necessary, but not sufficient for optimal metabolic health. Again, we are a whole complex system. You know, this is not like, you know, everything's separate, stress, sleep, uh, um, food, exercise, these things all weave together in this incredible hormonal, you know, chemical milieu that leads to the outcome. So you've got to think about each of them and how they relate to each other. So with stress, you really nailed it. I love how you put it. Like it's telling the body, like we might need to roll out. And so we need some energy available to feed these muscles. So our liver stores um, a few hours worth of really quickly accessible glucose for energy for emergencies like that um, it's in this in storage form called glycogen and when your stress hormones release catecholamines cortisol it goes to the liver and it tells the liver dump that stored glucose break that glycogen down put it into the bloodstream so that our muscles have a quick source of energy for uh, mobility and that's an evolutionarily advantageous thing if you're being chased by a lion you want that glucose to dump so that you can use your muscles Unfortunately, though, in our current world, we are under chronic low-grade stress basically all the time. The text dinging going off, the honking, you know, the 
The emails we're getting constantly. The body doesn't really realize that this is not a lion chasing you. It's the same threat signal. We're not safe. And it's happening all the time. Not to mention biologic forms of stress, the toxins in our food, water, and air. Even being sedentary is kind of a form of stress for the body. So it's like it's coming at us from all angles. And we're constantly just like, you know, like you said, hitting that sympathetic nervous system button. And so that can kind of create a situation in which we're just constantly keeping the blood sugar like a little bit elevated. I have noticed myself the very first podcast I did a few years ago, I was really nervous and I looked at my blood sugar afterwards and I had gone, I was totally fasted. I went up like 40 points. Like it looked like a food spike because of that cortisol, catecholamines, liver dumping, et cetera. And so we want to do whatever we can to, to avoid that. And the beauty is there's so much that we can do about it. We can, as you said, tickle the parasympathetic nervous system. And we can do that with tried and true practices like breath work. So to me, I'm really using my glucose monitor as a mindfulness biofeedback tool now. And when I see or feel that I'm under stress, I will just immediately go towards that deep diaphragmatic breath, you know, whether it's a a deep four breath inhale, four breath exhale, or a two to one ratio of inhale to exhale, do 10 deep breaths. I can feel my body change immediately in terms of how I just subjectively feel. Um, It's that beautiful release of calm. Um, But I also know that it's doing something good for my blood sugar because what it's doing is it's translating to my body that I'm safe. It's changing the hormonal milieu in my body saying, you're safe, there's not a threat. We don't need to mobilize energy for your muscles you can simmer down. And so so that's been something really super powerful for me about um, the link between blood sugar and stress. And of course, it all comes back to um, some of these ancient practices like breath um, and just getting ourselves and our body into a state of realizing that it's okay. Yeah. You even shared with me before we got started that even proactively doing this before you eat your meal can improve your body's response to said food afterwards. And if you think about, well, first of all, can you share a little bit about that? And then I'll share an example that it reminds me of. Yes, absolutely. So there have actually been research that's shown that in people with type 2 diabetes, just mindful eating, so really getting centered and sitting down and relaxing and taking a few, t- taking a few deep breaths and taking a moment to look at your food, appreciate the food, have gratitude for the food, look at the colors, the smells, the textures, um, of, of what's in front of you just for a couple of minutes can actually significantly reduce the glycemic impact of that meal compared to if you just plow into that meal essentially mindlessly, which is how I think many of us eat a lot of the time, eating on the go, um, you know, shoveling food in our mouths while we're eating. I think about surgical residency when I was like, I don't think I had a single meal sitting down for like four and a half years. Like I was on the staircase, like eating food in between surgeries, just shoving the cortisol was high, my body was not in a rest and digest state, and I'm sure it had um, an increased uh, impact on what the glucose was doing. And so um, so that's a definite thing I would recommend to people is that it's not just you know fuzzy advice to say mindfully eat. There's a real impact on what's going on with our hormones and the way we're digesting food. And so if you can just sit and maybe practically speaking, take um, 10 deep breaths into your belly, take a moment to express gratitude for the food, and then eat. It can actually have a, a significant impact on how you, how your blood sugar raises in response to that meal. 
Yeah, and if you think about just this this concept of taking a moment to pray before you eat, for mm-hmm. example, that folks have been doing for centuries, you know, that's kind of like calming down, getting centered, going within, and allowing for the the parasympathetic door to open because it's really a binary system by the way you can't do both at the same time and you know i think that a big reason as you just mentioned you said plowing through which is a great term is like we're just you know because of our constant fluctuations in our blood sugar when food is around it's just time like let's go for it instead of just and i know i've had those moments as well but i still every time i eat i take a moment even if i'm in the middle of a restaurant you know i close my eyes just take a moment, I give thanks for the food and take a couple of deep breaths and just become centered. And it's just like a, 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 the channel gets changed in reality for me and suddenly the food is here. Like it's just like a, a, a completely different experience because I just wanna plow into that food, you know, especially if you're hungry. And that's another thing, getting ourselves to the point where we're re- like, we're quote starving, which we're not starving. Um, then it's going to increase the incidence where we don't take a moment just to just to stop because we tend to think like this food is in front of us it's the last meal you got to go for it and you know so this provides again more empowerment for us and also it brings us back to more humanity because we have something going on today that we didn't have before which is even while we're eating our minds are getting outsourced we're not it's not like we're having the meal and like in a parasympathetic around good friends having conversation or just being there present with our foods, we're probably working. As you mentioned, being in the staircase, my, my wife shared the story. She actually told me yesterday, she was like, babe, did I tell you what I used to eat for lunch? When she was in high school, multiple times a week, I think she said like every day, which is scary. But then she, again, she had her mom cooking these incredible Kenyan meals for dinner. Mm. But she said every day she had a Rice Krispie treat and a Snickers bar for lunch and eat it in the staircase, right? Because, you know, she was coming from Kenya, she's feeling, you know, like she wasn't fitting in. And I'm just like, bro, how did you, how did you survive? But then again, you know, it's just, it's gonna get balanced out somehow. And, you know, I think that if we can reel it back in a little bit, and it's not, it's not that you can't, you know, have a movie night and eat your dinner, or whatever, but if that becomes the norm where your your mind is somewhere else than with your food or with what's happening in reality right there it's probably not gonna have a good outpicturing for our body's response. And so, you know, I love this so much. And, you know, one of the other things that I want to ask you about is, and this brings to light something so powerful. I've been talking about this for years, like literally since the first year of the Model Health Show, because we still can get tunnel vision when it comes to food and think that this is everything, which I know that I'm guilty of that because I'm a nutritionist. So food to me was everything. This is the end all be all. But in reality, you can overeat your way into creating excessive fat. You can under-exercise or under-move your way into excessive fat. You can under-sleep your way into excessive fat. And you can also over-stress your way Mm. into excessive fat. And Levels helps you to see that firsthand that your blood sugar can go nuts just when you're stressed. And if you're chronically in that state, which... we're talking hundreds of millions of people are living in perpetual stress and anxiety. It's no wonder we're in this place that we are. It's not just about the food. The food is a major portion of it for sure. But this is bringing to light how stress and anxiety is such an issue. And so 
the thing that I want to ask you about, and it's going to all tie together, and especially for our time that we're living in right now, and talk about solutions, the CDC's report, I've mentioned this several times, I'm going to keep hammering this away till we get it, because something just happened this week that we talked about right before the show, reiterating this point, but they analyzed the data from 540,000 plus COVID-19 patients, over 800 US hospitals. The number one risk factor for death from COVID was obesity. This was back in July, 2021. Everybody could see it, published article. And the second leading cause of death was anxiety and fear-related disorders, the second leading risk factor for death. Third risk factor was diabetes and its complications, right? So the first and third is something like, oh, of course, or we're not doing anything about it, but of course, but that middle one, the stress component is literally killing people. And I just read a paper this morning looking at an anti-psychotic uh, medication, an anti-anxiety medication, mm -hmm. reducing the risk of death from COVID. And I'm just like, what the hell? Why, why are people not talking about this? Because anxiety, that anxiety is gonna exacerbate your immune system, it's gonna cause more dysfunction. We know about this. We have entire fields of psychoneuroimmunology, years of data, we know this stuff. And so this is what I wanna ask you about. We, you mentioned this, that a new report just came out this week, finally saying, hey, you know, being excessively overweight is going to lead to worse outcomes from COVID and losing weight can possibly help to mitigate those things. Yeah. It's just like, we've been talking about this for a long time now. But with that said, obesity is arguably the biggest risk factor for these chronic conditions as well. And as you mentioned, abnormal blood sugar ties in very neatly with that. So let's talk about this. How can we address our obesity epidemic? Because right now we're knocking on the door of about 250 million of our citizens being overweight or obese. And this is tied to over 400,000 deaths a year, at least. This is looking at, again, just the major things, diabetes, heart disease, not to mention all the other stuff. So what can we do in this scenario because our blood sugar, as you mentioned, it's leading to worse outcomes with infectious diseases as well as chronic diseases. I think one thing that people might not realize is that there's just such an incredible bi-directional relationship between metabolic health and mental health. Um, actually, people with metabolic dysfunction and blood sugar dysregulation have about twice the rates of depression and anxiety as people without it. And of course, when there's more fear and anxiety, it's gonna drive that high cortisol and catecholamine state that leads us to be more metabolically dysfunctional. So they're very, very tied in to each other. And fear um, and sense of threat in the body, in the mind, of course is gonna mobilize this inflammatory sort of cascade in the body that says, there's an issue, there's a threat. We need to mobilize our resources like our immune system, which is the part of the body that fights threats. So we're living in this state where we're just creating the physiology in the body in part by how we're thinking um, that sets us up for dysfunction. Um, and concurrently, that dysfunction is contributing biologically to what's going on in our minds. So it's just an incredible bidirectional relationship that I think most people are not aware of. If you ask the average person with depression and anxiety, are you tracking your blood sugar? Do you know where you stand on the metabolic health spectrum? I think the majority are going to say no, even though there's a strong both epidemiologic and mechanistic link linking the two. So then moving into the question of, of COVID and what, we, what I'd like 
to to see happen. I think you've touched on this so much in the show, and I think it's in your in many episodes. And I think it's so important is that we need to be talking at the highest level of public health about how important it is to optimize our metabolic health um, and our weight in order to make ourselves biologically resilient to face this virus. The data is so clear. I actually published a paper in the journal Metabolism, um, sole author paper about this was in. I submitted this in April of 2020. This was over a year and a half ago. It was published in print in June. I had basically just been reviewing the research up and that started basically in February of last year about what was going on with COVID. And it was becoming clear that there are several biologic mechanisms that were leading to worse outcomes in people with type 2 diabetes or metabolic dysfunction, conditions like obesity. And we even knew then that it was not just a... Um, correlation, but there were potentially causative mechanistic links of why people were doing worse now, which we're, we're seeing a lot more, which is great. But for instance, obesity and diabetes create a baseline pro-inflammatory state in the body. People with these conditions have elevated immune chemicals like cytokines already in circulation. And we know that then when the virus affects the body, it mounts even more of an immune response and we get this cytokine storm that actually leads to the organ damage. It's the body's response to the virus, this overwhelming response um, that can cause the organ organ damage that leads to um, such severe morbidity and mortality. So if you're at baseline in that pro-inflammatory state with elevated cytokines like interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha, then when the virus hits you, you're going to mount that exaggerated response that hits your organs. And this circles all the way back to like what we were talking about with curcumin and turmeric and NF-kappa B pathways. You know, there are foods, I'm not certainly not saying that turmeric is going to prevent us from, from having poor COVID outcomes at all. There's no research to suggest that. But just the fact that what we're eating has a direct impact on these inflammatory pathways on the levels of cytokines in our bodies that we know are related to outcomes. So that was one of the the things that was a mechanistic link is increased baseline pro-inflammatory state in the body in the setting of metabolic disease. The second is that high blood sugar on its own can cause immune cell dysfunction. Basically, for an immune cell to work and to do its job, it has to get to the site of infection in the body. It literally has to move through the bloodstream, out of the bloodstream, into the tissue, and fight the infection and the cells that are infected. And that's a process called um, chemotaxis, which is the cells moving to the site of infection, and phagocytosis, which is actually eating cells that are infected or eating you know, viral particles, whatnot. And high blood sugar can directly impair the cell's ability to both move and phagocytose um, uh, in, you know, infection. And so we're literally stunting the ability of our immune cells to do their job just by having elevated blood sugar. The opportunity here is is massive, you know, figure out how to keep our blood sugar under better control and we know that it's going to have positive impacts um on on the body and there's several other, you know, things that have come out of course like that in the setting of diabetes, the um, the ACE2 receptor, which may be one of the sites of entry of the virus, is upregulated. So you've got more of these receptors on the cell membranes, maybe makes it easier for viral uh, entry into the cells. We also know that people with diabetes had um, higher sugar in their lung fluid. So like the sugar's everywhere, right? It, it's going to go. Ev- and that, um, that uh, 
higher levels of glucose sort of even in the lung tissue may have been a part of what made um, you know, the lung tissue so affected uh, by the virus in people with diabetes. So all of this I went into in this paper a year and a half ago, and yet, and, and really the call to action was, um, we can talk all we want about masks. We can talk all we want about Clorox. We were talking at that point about like uh, cytokine inhibitors to help stunt the cyto cytokine response. But none of that, those are all reactive measures. None of those increase biologic resilience. And one of the things that can is getting our metabolic health under control, which has all these multifarious effects on our immune system and how we're going to show up in the face of this um, virus. Not to mention, it's not just about creating readiness and resilience in the face of COVID. Every single flu season, people with type 2 diabetes or metabolic dysfunction have about a five time higher rate of hospitalization mortality from these respiratory illnesses. So it's not just about this one virus. This is about in the face of any infectious um, agent. We want to be resilient. And so certainly, um, I think that every billboard in the country should just have five steps of how to stabilize your blood sugar. It's not that hard. And what we know is that even for people with full-fledged type 2 diabetes, you can in many cases, reverse that condition or improve the condition. That's not something we hear a lot. When I was in medical school, I definitely thought type 2 diabetes was irreversible. That is not true. And for those 80 million people with prediabetes, it's even more likely that you can you know, reverse the disease. Um, and so... Uh, so I just think that, you know, we should be talking about this nonstop. You know, what if the billboards out there or the front page of the New York Times every day said, hey, um, balance your meals, walk after meals, get good sleep, uh, take deep breaths when you're stressed, things that can actually improve blood sugar. You know, that's what I would I would love to see. There, there's, you know, many other facets of it, of course, of course, but the baseline is what we just need to be talking about this and what the data shows. All right, I hope that you're enjoying this very special compilation of conversations with Dr. Casey Means. In this next segment, you're going to hear some powerful insights about ATP, adenosine triphosphate, what's often glorified as our body's energy currency. But you're going to discover a key nutrient required to actually make ATP biologically active. And so Dr. Casey's gonna share her perspective and her science-based evidence on this, but I gotta give you a heads up, all right? Our ATP is produced by our mitochondria, and our mitochondria are deeply dependent upon key electrolytes for them to function, one being the sodium-potassium pump, so that speaks to sodium and potassium, these key minerals that have an electric charge that enable essentially every function in our body to take place. So being deficient in these two things can cause major problems, obviously. And our mitochondria being able to generate and to create ATP in the first place. But also magnesium, another key electrolyte, is required. It has to be bound to ATP in order to make ATP biologically active. So this is why optimizing our electrolytes is so very important, especially today where Many of these electrolytes were developing deep deficiencies, in particular with magnesium. It is the number one mineral deficiency in our society. Right now, about 56% of the US population is chronically deficient in magnesium. That's a huge problem. There's hundreds of biochemical processes dependent on 
magnesium in order to work or in order to work optimally, right? Our bodies are incredibly intelligent trying to find another way, but what if we just give our bodies the base nutrients, the key required nutrients in order for it to function at its best? And so number one, of course, making sure that we're eating plenty of electrolyte rich foods, fruits and vegetables, all those good things, but also this is a place to supplement, especially if you're more active, if you're dealing with more stress. So if you're more cognitively active, more physically active, we know the importance of supplementing with electrolytes. And there's one company that is doing this the right way, the sourcing of the electrolytes and also not adding unnecessary nefarious sugars and artificial colors. And I'm talking about the incredible team at Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model to get your hands on the very best electrolytes out there. All right, if you're trying to stay salty in a good way, and we're talking about optimal ratios of potassium salts, magnesium salts, sodium salts, utilizing hundreds of thousands of data points from everyone from high-performing CEOs to professional athletes, seeing what is the optimal ratio, that's what they use to design Element. Again, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model. Grapefruit salt is back for a limited time right now. It's hot on the streets, all right? Grapefruit salt, and for good reason, is one of the all-time favorites, but it comes in seasonally. So hop over there, check out drinkelement.com forward slash model, and also you get a free gift with every purchase. You're gonna get a free bonus sample pack of electrolytes for you to try out their different flavors. All right, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model, and now, in this next segment with Dr. Casey Means, you're gonna learn about the key nutrient deficiency that's depressing people's energy and metabolic health, what it means to have a nutritional and lifestyle mismatch, the connection between sunlight and human function, and so much more. Check out this next segment with Dr. Casey Means. For ATP, this energy molecule, to be biologically active, it has to actually be bound to magnesium. And magnesium has over 400 biologic activities in the human body, ranging from so many metabolic processes, um, but also to, you know, neurotransmitter synthesis and all sorts of things. And we, I think many people are deficient in magnesium. And it's actually, I think, very much our responsibility to actually learn and understand what micronutrients are actually really important for our body to function and then understand where we get those things. So what are the sources? Um, so for instance, with magnesium, I know I want that to be just like on point. And so I'm, I've got pumpkin seeds at the ready basically all the time. It's one of my favorite sources of magnesium. There's like, you can meet the, the recommended daily intake of magnesium just by eating, you know, a handful basically of pumpkin seeds. So that's like one of my go-tos. And so if I'm making a nut milk one week in the Vitamix, I'll throw in some pumpkin seeds. If I'm making a trails mix, I'll throw in some pumpkin seeds. Um, there's lots of sources, but, um, doing the research to understand some of this stuff, it's, it actually is something we have to do. I mean, we 
we have this body <laughs> and unfortunately because of the way the system has been designed the healthcare system and the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of other complex factors at, at play we've unfortunately kind of i think gotten in this cultural mindset that we outsource that type of um, that type of empowerment or um, knowledge to other people like oh they'll tell me what i need to do they'll tell me what i need to eat that's not that's not working yeah. um your doctor's not telling you you know which micronutrients are super important for your health even if they are actually critical for particular health issues that you're facing like obesity and diabetes and heart disease so fortunately there's lots of great resources out there now like um your podcast we have lots of posts about this on the levels blog really practical information but like unfortunately like no one's coming to you know fix this in your life you really actually do have to kind of understand this information for yourself and advocate for yourself um, and learn uh and we all it's the information's not that complex we can all do it you just said it you know that's the thing too is that this can be this can be actually a really fun experience yeah. because for me when i was going into my conventional university setting which again same here i was not taught that magnesium was required for atp to be biologically active we were just taught this process get atp the body's energy currency woo in a story about 56% of United States citizens are deficient in magnesium. All right. I didn't it's, even know it that was that high. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. 56%. Yeah. So we're talking again, the majority of the population and a big reason why you just mentioned it's responsible for hundreds of biochemical processes in the body. What that means, this is going back to your, there's some screws loose or some screws missing in that factory, our metabolic factory. We literally can't do certain processes. Our body can't do it or can't do it efficiently if we're deficient in these key nutrients. Magnesium is a big one. And you mentioned the diversity, like magnesium is critical for your cardiovascular system, your immune system, your muscles, you know, just being able to contract and relax your muscles. And that's the thing too, that, that I wanna talk about. Magnesium plays such a huge role in, in your body's management of stress, like that switching from parasympathetic to sympathetic and back. So that sympathetic fight or flight to the parasympathetic rest and digest. Magnesium is key in this equation. And the reason that, number one, it's responsible for so much, but the reason we're so deficient is, it's just getting zapped. Like our body is using so much of it today. We're just, we're in stressful conditions, whether we realize it or not. Mm. And so like being adamant about getting food sources. So you mentioned pumpkin seeds being a great one. Uh, anything green really is gonna be a decent source of magnesium. Chocolate, funny mm -hmm. enough. Now, what if you combine some of these things together, make some food bars of your own, you know, Dr. Casey's Kitchen, you know, you teach us how to, <laughs> to make fun stuff like this. But um, again, this can be a fun process. It could be joyful. But to go back to my original point, you know, it's really about how we're taught and making it relevant, mm. right? We're so inundated with the idea that our health is out of our hands, right? We're victims and we're just being indoctrinated with these beliefs that, you know, if this problem's going on, I'm just missing a drug. You know, I've got a drug deficiency magnesium I need, I need this prescription you know but again these are things that our bodies require in order to have healthy function it's basic stuff yeah i mean you brought up such a great point too which is that these needs aren't static they're actually very dynamic based on your particular conditions at the time and i think that's another level of complexity that's actually really important for us to to kind of tune into as people um 
you mentioned that sometimes with stress, you may be depleting your magnesium more quickly as you're trying to adapt to these conditions. So your functional need for optimal function is actually higher than it might be on a day that you're totally chilled out and on vacation. And so the beauty of food is that it's this tool that we can use to flex up and flex down um, these substrates that are needed to help us function optimally. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about the future of expanded continuous biomonitoring because one of the ways that I really think about health, a framework that I think about health, is that it's actually a matching problem. We have this body that's this complex machine and we have all these things that can go into it like food and sunlight exposure um, and exercise, these external things. And really when we match what the machine needs in a given moment with what we're putting into it, we have optimal function and that is health and that is minimization of symptoms or disease. But when there's a mismatch between what the machine needs and what you're putting in, that is the root of symptoms and disease. And right now we have very little visibility into the black box of that body, like what's going on inside of it. And so it's actually a crapshoot to figure out what we should be putting in at any given moment. This is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about continuous glucose monitoring and levels. Like when you think about that type of matching problem, it's like, okay, well, I just had this breakfast, my glucose went up through the roof, I need to match that with a walk because I want to bring that down. I have a particular condition, and so there's something I should do to bring myself back to homeostasis. But right now, we can't do that for for anything else. We can't do it for micronutrients. We can't do it for our stress hormones. You know, if we knew that our cortisol was high in this moment, we could match that with a diaphragmatic breath or a 10-minute meditation app. And so right now, we're relying mostly on body awareness, which is a, a great thing, but a lot of us are missing that. You know, it's not something that we're taught how to yeah. sit still and think about what the body, you know, is feeling in a given moment. But but I think when you start just learning some of these basic principles about the dynamic needs of the body and then how to meet some of those needs, it can be really empowering. So for instance, like you said, if you're in a stressful situation, I'm often thinking about more magnesium I'm thinking about, so I'm thinking pumpkin seeds, yeah, dark chocolate, leafy greens. And then I'm thinking also about B vitamins because those can be depleted when we make some of our stress hormones. So if we're pumping those out all the time, we may need higher B vitamins. So, you know, when I was, for instance, very stressed after losing my mother last year, I totally changed my supplement regimen. I was like, my body is in a totally different state right now, and I need to actually supplement with more of these types of things to kind of help with my, um, you know, production of these hormones, especially. Um, and then I think I'm also often thinking about like with COVID, for instance, it's like, okay, I always want my immune system to be super on point, but like, zinc, selenium, magnesium, like vitamin D, like make sure that I'm just like super dialed in. I'm not on the low end of normal for vitamin D. I'm on the top end of normal. So kind of just always in real time adjusting to the realities of our circumstances, trying to kind of almost intuit what's going on with the biologic dynamic realities, ideally use lab testing to verify that and then meet those needs with the choices you make through food and lifestyle activities. And that is essentially the framework that I think we really need to focus on for for optimal health. And 
sounds complex, but I think as you know, once you kind of get these principles yeah. down, it's actually pretty straightforward to let this play out in your life. Yeah. I don't want to miss this. You said the S word in there. You said sunlight. Mm. How does sunlight affect our metabolic health? Mm. Sunlight is, I am so excited to be more a part of the health conversation and like shout out to Andrew Huberman, who I feel like has been such an amazing person bringing this to, um, bringing this to the daylight, you know, but it's <laughs> what I, the way I think about sunlight is that just like food is molecular information for our bodies, sunlight is energetic information for our bodies. And so we need to get the right information in at the right times if we want the body to function properly. So we, it's so incredible that we actually have cells that respond to photons, to packets of light energy that have traveled from the sun. Millions of miles. It's it's so amazing. Bananas. And we have cell receptors that can absorb them and that can make that 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 energy that they absorb creates again a tiny physical conformational shift in some proteins that sets off a neuron to fire and this is happening in our retina mm. um so the light's going in traveling millions of miles binding to our photoreceptor cells in our retina setting off a axon you know a, a, a um an impulse to our brain goes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain and that's sort of like the internal biologic clock part of the brain and from there sets off this incredible cascade of events that goes on throughout our entire body that essentially tells the body this is what time of day it is and this is what the body needs to do right now it's amazing it's awe-inspiring to me and unfortunately <laughs> a lot of bad news i feel like when we're talking about this stuff in our modern living, in our modern world, we've totally changed our relationship to sunlight. And that's actually an incredibly modern phenomenon that we can have like an entire day go by where we don't go outside. I mean, this even happens to me sometimes. I wake up, I brush my teeth, I make my coffee, I sit down at my desk, all of a sudden it's 3 p.m. and I'm like, Shit. I have not been outside, which means that my body has not been exposed to the energetic information that will travel to my brain and tell my cells how to work properly. And one of the things that's really important about what's going on with the suprachiasmatic nucleus is that it is basically telling the body which genes to be turned on and off like during the day and during the night so you're 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 changing gene expression by your exposure to light you're also changing hormonal pathways um and many metabolic pathways are controlled by circadian rhythms and by sunlight so what i what's really i think just like simple takeaway for people is that it is very important for your body to know when it is the morning and it's really gonna know that most strongly if it actually if the if the eyes are exposed to sunlight so you need to go outside in the morning whether it's cloudy or or whatever there's still sunlight coming through and expose your body to that energetic information and so I now brush my teeth outside every single day. Like no matter what, I just like, I just walk outside and I do that two or three minutes to make sure. And I, I stare at the sky, don't wear sunglasses, don't do it through a window because that will actually block a lot of that, that sunlight energy and let your body, you know, know what time it is essentially in that energetic way. So um, 
So I think that's a really big missing piece of the weight and metabolism conversation. Um, Because again, we focus so much on food and exercise, but um, it all these things all work together to create homeostasis and um and we got to lean into them the micronutrients avoidance of obesogens good exposure to sunlight microbiome optimization and then of course sleep stress management exercise and healthy food those are really the pillars that we need to think about what is our skin made out of right because isn't our diet affecting how the sun might affect us Oh, absolutely. I mean, something I think about when I'm when I've gotten a little bit more sun exposure and you know, we know that, you know, UV rays can cause or that can be mutagenic and can cause DNA damage. But like the cool thing about something cool about the body is that it's actually got lots of DNA repair enzymes that actually are like little machines that go around and repair DNA that's been broken or mutated by different mutagens of which UV rays is one. And it's like, you think about this again, it's like, well, what what gets our genetic pathways to work properly? Well, food is a big one. Micronutrients are a big one. These are just little machines that essentially need to be expressed properly, function properly. And so I'm always thinking about like, how do I get my, um, you know, basically DNA repair enzymes to be working properly? So again, you obviously, it's same thing as we talked about with obesogens. You want to reduce excessive exposure to things that are harmful, but you also want to focus on the things that your body can do to protect you from the inevitable risks that happen because of living. And we're living in a world right now, unfortunately, where we've really started having a very confused relationship with risk, I think, um, where success criteria is that we have zero risk and then forget that the flip side of that coin could actually be potentially more damaging or sometimes more lethal than the uh, the steps we're taking to minimize risk. So that's a whole nother. But but to to focus back on um, on the sunlight um, question and 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 just sort of that conversation, I think um, there's this term that I love, uh, which is essentially talking about what's happening to the the modern body, which is we're getting lots of irregular photic signals. And so what that means is that the light our bodies have evolved over millions of years to experience and to interface with at certain periods of the day, we're giving it irregular signals. So that means no sunlight in the morning and then lots of blue light at night because we're staring at our screens and, you know, looking at we've got the light bulbs and all this stuff. And so can you just imagine how confusing that is for ourselves? It's like, wait a minute. Okay, millions of years, we did sun in the morning and dark at night. And now, we're doing dark in the morning and sun at night. Like, it's of course we're sick. <laughs> like, and I think uh, we've there's been studies that have looked at how this affects metabolic health. And when you are exposed even for one night to excessive blue light at night, it impairs glucose and insulin function the next day. Like it's one just and this is happening to us every single day. Um, and so it has this really important impact on our metabolic health. Um, and then just. And, and you mentioned vitamin D, which I think is another really important part of the conversation. Light is required for the vitamin D synthesis process. Vitamin D is is just just pleiotropic in its effects in the body. We need it for optimal health. And so um, if we are uh, just not exposing our bodies to sunlight, we're going to have issues with vitamin D production. And you just, yeah, you, you can't have optimal functioning without 
really adequate vitamin D levels. And the last thing that I really think about a lot when I think about sunlight is that we are we have chosen to essentially disconnect ourselves to source and to this source energy that gives all things life. And on sort of a bit more of like a woo-woo or philosophical level, it's like that can't be good for us to be separated from this life-giving energy. And so you think about metabolism. Well, where does glucose come from? Glucose comes from the sun, essentially. Sun interacts with plants and with chloroplasts and we gen- and generate carbohydrates from the reaction. And it's like this cycle that with without the sun, there's no there's no glucose, there's no carbohydrates that are created by the plants. And then what do we do? Either the animals eat those things or we eat those things. And then we then basically are just a secondary conversion process mm. of what the sun has created in plants um, to create our own ATP. So we are so intimately linked to the sun. We are essentially just a downstream manifestation of chemical reactions that started on this the star. And that, I mean, I don't, it's, it's kind of wild to think about, but, um, but it helps make me feel more compelled and connected to live in a bit more of a natural way. Because when you, when you take away that connection, it's it's similar to how I think about the microbiome. I mean, the microbiome, they were, the bacteria were here a long time before us, our mitochondria are even, you know, we know that mitochondria are essentially remnant, you know, bacteria that that eukaryotic prokaryotic cells took up to make eukaryotic cells, which are what make up the human body. And, um, and we're poisoning them, you know, we're poisoning these, these parts of our cell that give us our spark that give us energy that give us life. Um, And so I think a lot of the future of health and really reversing our chronic disease epidemic is having respect Mm. for where we've come from, and what gives us life and gives us energy and stop separating from it and stop poisoning it let's talk about sex (laughs) all right uh fertility and metabolic health are tightly linked and i don't think the average person has any idea about that so let's dive in and talk about that association this is a fascinating relationship because the way i would sum it up is if you care about fertility sexual function or sexual pleasure then it is in your best interest to focus on your metabolic health and metabolic optimization because they are inextricably linked and there's a lot in this this connection but i think it's actually really important to understand some of the stats around sexual health and sexual function right now because they're pretty bad and and the research is really showing us that there may be a very direct mechanistic link between the sexual function issues that we're seeing in society and the underlying metabolic uh, issues that we're seeing in society. So looking at sexual function, so if you look at women, um, around 85% of women after menopause have report uh, sexual dysfunction symptoms. So this means um, issues with desire or orgasm. And even before menopause, that number is in about the 40 to 50% range. If you look at men, 
52% of men are recording issues with sexual dysfunction. So this is things like erectile dysfunction. And even under the age of 40, that number is still 25%. So this is not like 10% of people are having issues with desire, libido, you know, erection. This is like we're talking the majority of people. And it's like, what is what is more evolutionarily vital than like our desire and ability to reproduce. And that's under siege right now, essentially. And, and the evidence suggests that these numbers are are going up. So then we think about how this could be related to metabolism. Well, first big picture thing, again, metabolism is how we produce energy in the body. And sexual function is a really complex process. A lot of the whole body has to basically be firing on all cylinders for this process to happen because we are talking about psychological elements, neurologic elements, hormonal elements, and vascular elements. So vascular, we need blood flow to the penis to have an erection. Hormonal, we need testosterone to make sperm. Psychological, we have to be in a good mood or in a particular mood a to particular want to mood. a particular mood <laughs> to want to, you know, pursue um sex and um, neurologic, we need the nerves to actually be going to the penis or the clitoris or whatnot to not only feel and transmit what's happening, but also to stimulate the nerves to kind of get uh, the function that we need. So it's like the body needs to be just like boom, 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 boom for all of this to work. And how does how do we get the body to be firing on all cylinders? Well, we need energy, and energy comes from metabolism, and 88% of American adults are metabolically dysfunctional. So that's just kind of big picture there. And then you think about um, some of the specific links, and you really can break it down into three things that, that where metabolism is directly impairing sexual function. And it comes down to blood flow, hormones, and psychology. And so when we talk about blood flow, um, really metabolism is is often the term cardiometabolic health is used because cardiac health and metabolic health are so inextricably linked. When we have metabolic dysfunction um, and we are having trouble processing glucose um, into energy in the body, trouble making energy in the body, this can create oxidative stress and inflammation, both of which can cause issues with the blood vessels, causing them to narrow and thicken and have more difficulty getting blood flow to where it needs to go in the body. Um, we talked about this on our last episode, but you know, having um, you know, something like type 2 diabetes, this puts us at much higher risk for stroke and heart disease and these issues where we're having blood flow, uh, having trouble getting somewhere in the body. But this is no difference than having trouble getting blood flow to the uh, reproductive organs. And so, um, you know, for women to even have adequate lubrication, you need blood flow to that area so that that can actually happen. Um, the clitoris and the penis both are erectile tissues that fill with blood when they are stimulated. So if you're having issues with that process, it's going to have an impact. The other big piece is nitric oxide. So insulin resistance, which is um, the process, you know, that that ensues towards 
uh, type 2 diabetes and prediabetes, where the body has trouble taking up glucose out of the bloodstream and is a sign of uh, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance actually affects the brain in such a way that the brain has trouble setting off the pathway towards creating nitric oxide synthesis in the body. And nitric oxide is this amazing chemical in the body that causes blood vessel dilation. So you've got inflammation and oxidative stress that are leading to blood vessel thickening and narrowing. You've got insulin resistance leading to nitric oxide issues. So you're not getting the dilation you need of the blood vessels. And all of this is going to have a huge impact on our ability to feed erectile tissue with blood. Um, the other thing that nitric oxide does is actually causes, um, it has an impact on the, on vaginal wall function. It's a relaxer basically. And so, um, it's going to have an impact on female sexual function in several different ways. So that's kind of just the blood flow piece right there. And then we've still got hormonal and mood, but kind of just starting to paint the picture that like these things mechanistically are very linked. And so we want to optimize metabolic health so we can optimize vascular health. And that of course is going to feed into optimal sexual health. Wow. Wow. This is freaking blowing my mind truly, <laughs> because again, we don't put these pieces together. We just kind of feel victimized by a condition and we don't know the origin we're seeing some really scary things happening with fertility in our culture in the last few decades one large study found that infertility rates globally have risen 15 percent from 1900 to 2017 so about 100 years and that was knocking on the door of almost being half of a percent each year fertility rates going down. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the heck is going on? And people are really not talking about this. And you also mentioned uh, some of this re research on sperm count. Okay, so can you talk about the sperm issue and just overall fertility? Absolutely. So evidence suggests that sperm counts are down 50% in the last 30 years. And this is this is shocking. I mean, because like, what's the end state of this if this just keeps getting worse? That's and crazy. we look at the relationship between metabolism, weight, and sperm count. And there was a study out of Harvard that showed that compared to a normal weight man, if you are a man with obesity, you are 80% more likely to have zero sperm in your semen. So like sperm-free semen. And so we're now in the country at 74% rate of overweight and obesity. And so you start putting these things together and it's like, we could be, this could be a big problem. Um, about 50% of infertility that we're, we're dealing with today is male factor infertility. And a lot of this seems to be related to to weight. Um, there's also a lot of talk about how these endocrine disrupting chemicals, like we talked about earlier, may be relating to declining sperm quality and quantity. But in this more systems biology perspective that you know we talk about of how these things are all interrelated, you can see how these are not separate issues. It's like the endocrine disrupting chemicals, it's affecting sperm, it's affecting metabolism. We've got weight going up, that's affecting hormones. And the end result here in this whole milieu is that we have poor sperm count and quality. Um, one of the things that's affecting this is that in men, when you have excess body fat, fat is this amazing 
organ that I don't think we recognize very often is actually an endocrine organ. Fat actually can convert testosterone to estrogen. And Dr. Ben Bickman, who wrote Why We Get Sick, um, he, he creates this analogy of like fat in a man is like basically a giant ovary. And it's converting testosterone to estrogen. Aromatization. Aromatization. And this, you need the right balance of testosterone in a man's body in order to produce sperm effectively. So that's kind of what's happening on the male front. And um, and then, of course, you've got the issues with erectile dysfunction like we just talked about. So that's like getting the sperm out of the body. Right, right. <laughs> so step on, one. Step one is make the sperm. T- step two, get it out. And it's like both of those issues are having big problems. And let's not forget, we actually know that men with erectile dysfunction have a 192% higher chance of depression than men without erectile dysfunction. And it's kind of a question of like, what's the chicken and the egg there? But because we yeah. know the relationship between metabolism and depression, we can see how a lot of these things may actually be linked mechanistically by what's going on under the hood. But there are several things that- Under the hood. Under the hood. All right. (laughs) But you know, even just things like stress management, getting adequate sleep, aerobic exercise, resistance training, and high quality nutrient dense diet, we know that all of those things can help with testosterone production in the body and specifically weight loss. Even losing 10% of your body weight can have a significant impact on testosterone levels. So that's just, this is all what's going on with men. Then you look at female fertility and this, I mean, I don't know, (laughs) both are so alarming, but with women, the leading cause of infertility in the United States is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And polycystic ovarian syndrome is actually fundamentally a metabolic issue. And actually in 2012, the NIH wanted to change the name of PCOS to multi-system reproductive metabolic syndrome. So really call it what it is, multi-system reproductive metabolic issue. But instead we've kept this name that's really difficult to understand, polycystic ovarian syndrome, not every woman with this disease actually has cystic ovaries. So it's it's just it's just a strange name. Um, but really what it is, is fundamentally there is a, a strong mechanistic overlap with uh, insulin resistance and metabolic issues. And the reason for this is because when we have high insulin levels in the body, which is what happens when we are insulin resistant or have metabolic dysfunction, the body overcompensates to this block of being able to get insulin, uh, I'm sorry, of being able to get glucose into the cells by producing more insulin to help drive glucose into the cells to overcome the insulin resistance. We end up with hyperinsulinemia. It's like high, a riot. Yeah, exactly. We end up with high insulin levels. And what do those insulin levels do? They do stuff all over the body, but in the ovary, what they do is they stimulate the ovary to make more testosterone. So now you've got women making more male hormones, androgens, and then that is setting off menstrual irregularity, um, issues with infertility, as well as some of the other associated symptoms of PCOS, like hirsutism, which is like excess hair growth, um, more central obesity, storing fat more in the midline, and acne. So these are a lot of the things that people with PCOS deal with. And 
Insulin also stimulates the ovary to upregulate the cell type called the FECA cell that make these androgens. So you not only get higher stimulation of androgens, but you get proliferation of this cell type. Um, so, so that's happening. And what's interesting, though, is that in the research, several studies have shown that lowering your insulin levels, improving insulin sensitivity, improving metabolic health can significantly improve PCOS symptoms and normalize sex hormones. There was an amazing study about two years ago that I loved that was looking at a ketogenic Mediterranean diet in 14 women for just 12 weeks, and they all had PCOS. And the diet was actually... What I loved about the study is that it was actually a very healthy diet. It was ketogenic, but not focused on just like all animal protein. It was actually unlimited quantities of leafy green vegetables. So there was no restriction. They could have as much of those as they wanted. Um, a very moderate amount of animal protein. And it had it was fish and, you know, poultry. Um, and then they added in supplements of plant polyphenols. So these plant chemicals that can be very protective. And so it wasn't restrictive. It included a lot of greens and it was low overall, uh, a low carbohydrate diet. They did this for 12 weeks. The women lost on average 20 pounds in the study average. Their insulin levels plummeted, triglycerides plummeted, HDL went up, LDL went down, uh, insulin sensitivity went up, fasting glucose went down and their sex hormones by and large in all the the patients went to more normal levels. Mm. And so it's just like, why again, front page news. It's like, this is not, this is doable. We can do this. And I don't think the average woman with infertility knows this. I think there's often just a treadmill that you go on towards hormonal therapy, assistive reproductive technology. We're doing about 200,000 assisted reproductive technology procedures per year, things like IVF. And we're doing this before we do some of the foundational stuff, like focus on dietary and uh, lifestyle habits and think about the true physiology of what might be going into some of these issues. So um, I want that to be a message that women hear so they feel empowered to maybe dig into this a little bit more before they go through the pain and expense of more interventional uh, fertility um, you know, paths. Um, and, and of course, this isn't going to work for everyone. This is I'm not making universal statements about what's causing infertility, but it's clearly a well-defined link that we should be more aware of. Our metabolic health influences every aspect of our lives, whether it's the general lens of metabolism, our ability to optimally burn fat and store energy, or stretching that out to the metabolism of our brain and being able to utilize fuel to drive signal transduction for our cells to talk to each other. We want our brain cells to be able to communicate. It's kind of important in order for us to sustain our livelihood and our cognitive function and our memories, all right? Also our immune system, we have an entire field of immunometabolism looking at how our immune cells themselves, their metabolic health is going to help us to keep our cells more resilient and our tissues are more resilient against infections, but also how the overall metabolic health of the individual is impacting the function of our immune system. The list goes on and on. There isn't a facet of human health that isn't influenced by our metabolic health. That's why this conversation is so important. So I hope that you got a lot out of this and definitely follow Dr. Casey Means. Matter of fact, take a screenshot of this episode and tag her, shout her out. She's at 
Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram. That's D-R-C-A-S-E-Y-S Kitchen on Instagram. And I'm at Sean Model if you want to tag me as well. And I love to see that. I'm always checking in when the new episodes come out to see who's sharing the love. So that's one way to share with your friends and family. And of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening on to spread this empowering information. We've got some epic masterclasses and world-class guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.